Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for The Film File. The film show for film geeks by film geeks. Unleash the geeks. And hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And we're back for another show. Wondering how you are. We've missed you over the last week. Yeah. Andy, talking of missing, I've not had a chance to miss you because I've seen you. We've spoken a lot. We've got a busy show. <laughs> we have. And this is a rarity this week, isn't it? Let's be honest. This is this is something <laughs> that hasn't happened in quite a while. Yes, Lee has seen a film. In fact, Lee has seen two films this week that I've also seen. And the two are the biggest releases. Now... We're not going to spoil you by telling you what they are at this point in time, but I think regular listeners to the show will know which two films we've both been really enthused about. The sense of expectation we put into <laughs> reviewing both of these films, it would have been wrong if we didn't have a chance to see it together. Well, we didn't actually see it together. No. Um, together. Use the plural. Both, yeah, because unfortunately work has been getting in the way for both of us. For my late night shows, for me watching things, Lee's been having to get up early, so it's been a bit out of his uh, comfort zone to sit until the early hours of the morning watching something. And yeah, drinking cocktails, watching films, all gone. And when Lee wants to come in and watch a film, I'm working. So, you mm. know, it's uh, so we have kind of been in the same building at the same time. Yes. But uh, not, not watching, watching the, the same film, the same same film together. But it, um, it, yeah, it's, it's been, I mean, this, this for me has been the week of, I've been looking forward to these films that we're going to talk about today since they were due out last year. I know. Well, I've got to the point now, which I and I think everybody should do it. I think basically write off last government should write it off, basically yeah. give you a tax rebate for the year, and um, you know you can even do it with your birthday. Take a year off your off your age, all those oh, sorts of things. I don't want to be twenty again. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not time travel. Oh, not how it um, works. <laughs> and just just give you the year back, and or you can trade the year in at some later stage. Going, yeah, I, I want to trade. Um, uh, 2020 <laughs> in for another year. Okay, yeah, do that. I'll trade Maybe. you three 2020s for a shiny 2021. <laughs> yeah, exactly that kind of thing. But um, oh. I mean, are you guys a bit worried? I mean, here in the UK, hello Utah, um, <laughs> hello Salt Lake City. Are you getting a bit concerned? Because I mean, despite the government's best efforts to um, paper over the fact that there's still a global <laughs> pandemic and. Uh, and not rising to the challenge that there's going to be, you know, more pandemic. Yeah. Uh, uh, are, are, is the cinema industry thinking, trying to think ahead of the government, or are they just um, just waiting for the government to make decisions? Are you are you putting stuff into um, into consideration now, thinking, well, just in case? Well, I'm sure somewhere in the head ups, they've got it on the back burner that if. If we get forced into lockdowns, this is what we do. Or if we get forced into restrictions, this is what we do. But at the moment, the government's message is that it's the plan B um, approach. Which, which, yeah, which is to, this plan B they speak of. Which which confuses me because I thought it meant that a really dubious rapper goes around and talks to everyone. <laughs> but it's it's apparently not that plan B. Uh, it, it's basically... it. It's introducing measures, but without lockdowns and major restrictions. So it will introduce the vaccine passports for venues that have um over over 500 people i think i've read somewhere that will be mostly stood up so concerts etc you'll have to have a vaccine passport for nightclubs that stay open after midnight would have to have vaccine passports to basically restrict the 
the transmission of the disease. Introduction of face masks as compulsory again would be something that they look at. So they're very keen to not lock down and not close places, but add in measures around the country, basically back to what we were when we re- when, when everything reopened again and we still had some restrictions in. It'll be a return back to that. I, I can't understand, really don't understand why they're not doing it now. Rather than get to yeah. the 11th hour, you know, there's no point in crashing the car to say, before you go, you know, I really shouldn't have crashed the car. I should have worn a seatbelt. Just don't crash the yeah. car and, and have a seatbelt on. But, yeah, th- th- there's no worries at the moment that anything's going to go to lockdown and cause, you know, a crippling economy because the, the economy can't really cope with another lockdown, especially yeah. with all the situation we've got at the moment with, yeah, I know there's some people out there who believe that all this, oh, there's a lack of drivers and there's shortage of supplies is all false news. And like they'll say, I went into my Tesco's and the shelves were loaded, so it can't be a, a problem. Trust me, it is. As someone who orders stock for a cinema on a weekly basis, we have shortages. We will order. We, we ran out of popcorn last week. We ran out of popcorn. We also ordering... ran out of vegan cheese. Yeah, uh, vegan cheese has been a nightmare to get hold of. It's it, it's we, we finally got some about two weeks ago and then we haven't been able to get some since. And these supply issues are causing a problem. You don't notice it as much if your Tesco's a small one on the outskirts of a city, but you go to a busy shop and you will notice some shelves empty. We're not talking like it's like the apocalypse has taken place and nothing's on any shelves, but there'll be some racks that all of a sudden, instead of having just one batch of cereal brand in a small section, that batch has expanded out because the prime brands that sell well have all vanished. Mm. And this is the kind of thing that that the padding things out with the stock that is easy to get hold of, but it's usually the cheaper stock. And it's a nightmare. I mean, like I say, ordering for the cinema at the moment, it's it's hit and miss as to whether we get it delivered. You'd order all the stock to come in on the Friday and then you get to the Friday, go, right, okay, so we're going to run out of nachos by Sunday. We're going to run out of cheese tomorrow. We're going to run out of this. This is the situation. We are ordering up to four or five weeks worth of stock in advance, just on the off chance that they won't be able to send us any wow. in a few weeks' time. It's, it is out there. So if you're still one of those skeptics who thinks that it's all a load of bunkum, no, it's true. It all is happening behind the scenes. It's just that every retailer and every entertainment venue and every leisure activity is doing their utmost to ensure that it doesn't impact on you, the consumer. Yes. But yeah, well I, I, I've hardly got any hair on my head as it is, but I'm pulling out what's left of my hair on a weekly basis with what we don't get <laughs> delivered. Sweets, can you believe it? How hard it is to get hold of Maltesers, Minstrels and Revels. It's well, crazy. You know, and, I, you, you, and I'm pretty gend up. You know, I'm an avid politics follower and I'm a, and, and an avid reader. I, I'm being aware of, of, of the complications, shall we say, for, for want of a more neutral term. But I've not taken into account that while I've been looking at supermarkets and not understanding your business mm. and seeing how difficult that's become. Very, very intriguing and uh, not likely to get better anytime soon, I'm afraid. I hate to be the, I hate to be the pessimist out of both of us. But Well, our suppliers are telling us that these kind of problems will still be a problem up until early into next year. Yeah. Uh, one of our suppliers who supplies our cheese sauce for our nachos toppings, uh, they ordered in what they could and we had to put a pre-order in for three months worth of stock. So we've now got a huge pallet upstairs loaded with boxes upon boxes upon boxes. And we're having to find space around the building to stash whatever we can get because I've got we a have shed. to over order. I have a shed if you need help. 
Uh, well, we'll we'll take that in mind. But it, it, they've said that like if we didn't get it three months worth on that date, it might get to December and it'll have all gone and we'll have no cheese sauce until early 2022. Wow. So this is how the situation is. And this is what we're doing to try to try to control it so that people can still have their night out and have their nacho dips and have their popcorn. When we ran out of popcorn last week, it was like, <laughs> you're a cinema without popcorn. I was expecting, like, remember the when KFC ran out of chicken and there was that yeah, video yeah. of that woman going, I had to go to Burger King. I was expecting something similar. <laughs> but, <laughs> but luckily, most of our customers were understanding when we said, look, unfortunately, we've run out. It's like, oh, these things happen. And, and they shouldn't happen. And no. just the fact that people are complacently just accepting that it happens shows that people are getting used to running out of stuff. What a crazy yeah, world we live yeah. in crazy world but what isn't crazy is our show because it is created like a fine swiss watch that everything <laughs> runs to time and on detail unfortunately i keep taking the screwdriver out and um dismantling <laughs> this watch and throwing th throwing springs left right and center i think i've got it working yeah. better now <laughs> you can't see the joins apart from that one time but we're not going to hold that against you just that one time that's all that was all it was that one time oh come on that that was fun wasn't it that, 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 was, that was my little insight into how the editing process takes place it was an educational show let's be honest <laughs> in this week's film file we have our usual deep dive not into one movie but into a whole genre of movies when we tackle martial arts movies in particular the Hong Kong films. As Andy said, we will be reviewing Dune, The French Dispatch. And I'm also going to review the final one of the Welcome to the Blumhouse films this year, The Manor. And as well as all the usual chat and gossip, we bring you the item that we like to proudly call our very own The News. So sadly, we have to start the news with the story that broke only a few days ago about the tragic deaths on set of the new Alec Baldwin movie, Rust, where two members of the crew were shot, one fatally, in a, an incident which will, of course, be a wake-up call to all, all of Hollywood and all of filmmakers across the world. But we can't start the show without having to, having to mention it. It's massive news for the industry, and therefore, this is a film file. Uh, and we've got to, uh, we are obliged to to talk about this tragic incident. So, Andy, what do we know so far? So, whilst filming on the set of Rust, a Western film starring Alec Baldwin, of which he's also a producer, cinematographer Halina Hutchins lost her life in what is a tragic accident when a gun that was handed to Baldwin and said to be cold, and we'll explain this terminology as we go through the report, turned out to be a live gun and she was fatally wounded. Director Joel Souza was also injured during the accident. Whilst rehearsing a scene for a shootout in a church, Baldwin himself was visibly distraught on set. There's a couple of pictures from the set of him creased up with complete distress, complete shock. Um, he was fr frustratingly asking why he was presented with a hot gun and broke down and he released a statement on Twitter not long afterwards, saying, there is no words to convey my shock and sadness regarding the tragic accident that took the life of Halnia Hutchins, a wife, a mother, and deeply admired colleague of ours. I'm fully cooperating with the police investigation to address how this tragedy occurred, and I'm in touch with her husband, offering my support to him and his family. My heart is broken for her husband, their son, and all who knew and loved her. Now, 
let's just explain the terminology. A hot gun is a gun that has an ammunition round loaded in it, whether it be a blank round or an actual live bullet. A cold gun is supposed to be completely empty of any firing. It can't, it hasn't even got a cap shot. It's got nothing in there. So there's no way. It's basically an empty gun for rehearsing, practicing, or just using as a basic prop. There's measures in place on set. There's training that goes in. There's full half hour sessions before any any shot, scenes are shot, which involve guns, where they're all put taken through safety, handling, what to look for, what to do. And there's a chain of people who make sure that the weapons are presented correctly. And in this situation, he, Alec Baldwin was handed a gun by the gun expert who said to him and other, other people on set have declared that they witnessed him say multiple times, cold gun, cold gun, which meant it shouldn't have been loaded. And it wasn't an empty gun. It wasn't a cold gun. It had, we don't know yet because the investigation is still going on. We don't know whether it was an actual live round or whether it was just a blank. But even a blank can result in tragic circumstances. We've seen this demonstrated before decades ago when Brandon Lee lost his life on set when a similar situation happened with a blank launched a bit of shrapnel out through the end of the barrel and basically killed him on the spot. This happens very rarely within the industry. There's so many control measures in place for when they're handling weapons and there's training that they're all given. So this accident is completely tragic. It's hard to actually convey all the intense feelings that there could be around that set. Alec Baldwin is going to be a shattered, broken man now. Oh, absolutely. How do you walk away and get on with the rest of your life when you've, you've known that you've, you've taken someone's life, albeit accidentally? and it, it's just absolutely, absolutely, my heart breaks for the guy. And, uh, you know, I got called in as as is my role as a, a radio pundit talking about movies and films. And, of course, one of the questions that came up, that the use of guns on movie sets needs to be somehow changed radically, especially after an accident, and, and albeit a, 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 as tragic as a one as this. Um, and I... Wasn't defending the film industry, but I, and I also know that, of course, what they're after. Any news item is after um, something conclusive that they can offer. But yeah. we work in a world, let alone the film industry, where we only ever react to issues when there is a fatality, yeah. when there is an, a dreadful accident. That's when we are um, uh, that kind of a society. We're not not always forward thinking. We. We, we we deal with things after the fact, and and this was an accident. Okay, there, there's maybe lots and lots of reasons as to why that accident happened, but it's an accident. What we have to realise is that, as I've said before, this is an ongoing investigation. Um, however, reports are coming out that just hours before the incident, half a dozen camera operators and assistants had walked off set in a protest against poor working conditions, including long hours long commutes to and from the set, and gun protocols not being adhered to on the set. There was at least one person who complained about an incident the previous week in which a stunt double accidentally fired off two live rounds after being told that the gun was cold, and an additional misfire on an earlier shoot had been reported. As one of them said, there should have been an investigation into what happened. There were no safety meetings. There was no assurance that it wouldn't happen again. All they wanted to do was rush, rush, rush. So it seems like there's some failures on behalf of the production 
which have led to this because multiple incidents of a similar nature basically should have been a, a, a red flag that something was going to go wrong. And tragically, it did. You know, and these are the things on low budget films. And, and, and apparently this is only a small budget film. When you have time as an issue, you've, you've not hired the best people because you can't afford to. Uh, and corners are cut. And, and it's the same, as I said before, it's the same across all industry. When all those things happen, then you have the perfect storm for, for an accident happen. Um, somebody will, uh, whether it be the production company, it will be the person responsible, which I'm, I'm assuming in this particular case. And as, I, as, as Andy's pointed out, information still coming through and everyone at this stage is, is cooperating with the sheriff's department in New Mexico. Yeah. But when you've got a, a low budget movie, these are the, these are the problems that you had, but it, it is, it's, it's very sad. And as I said, every minute of the day, there are thousands of thousands of other productions, TV movies in this country, in the U S across the world where accidents don't happen. And, and thankfully it is incredibly rare. And on all it takes is, is, is exactly that an accident to happen to bring light to it but what can be done better better working conditions for crew clearly uh you can't get any more rigorous as i say there are thousands of films being shot even as we speak with doing doing gunfight sequences and actors are taught how to use guns uh actors are taught where to fire because when you see those shots it's usually slightly in the camera a little bit of camera trickery. It looks like they're pointing down the lens, but but they're not. They're pointing slightly off, or there's a screen. But as we found out since, this was a rehearsal, and yeah. you never you never do a rehearsal with, with live ammo. Never do a rehearsal. So um, a lot of questions are still to be answered. But of course, we we can't we can't end this. But but offer our condolences as as, as little as that means to somebody who's on the other side of the world. Uh, our thoughts go out to Helene's family. Uh, we wish the director a speedy recovery and we wish our best to everybody on the crew, including Alec Baldwin, who must be going through a terrible, awful, awful time. Just spinning from that, it, some productions in Hollywood at the moment, as a reaction to this tragic news, have already started replacing the the prop guns that they're using for the scenes with airsoft guns. Nathan Fillion's The Rookie TV series has already introduced airsoft guns and then adding CG muzzle flash in post-production because airsoft guns can look like perfect replicas now and they will still give the click and a bit of a kick for the actors to react to. So that is one way that the industry is realising that they don't necessarily have to have actual live guns anywhere near a set. What's going to happen going forwards? We don't know. It's still ongoing. It's still being investigated. We could point fingers all day but let's not point fingers. And it could be made political, but let's not be political. Let's just, like you've said, offer our condolences uh, to the tra- like people involved in this tragic circumstance and hope that the industry can learn something. If they're going to use actual weapons on set, don't cut corners when it comes to safety, because that looks like it's the deciding factor in what has led to this event. Yeah. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about box office. What do we got? I mean, we know that June's opened. Has it opened big? Has it opened to expectation? Um, of course, there's a lot relying on it opening to expectation because if it doesn't do the business, then I'm guessing we won't be seeing that that much needed follow-up. Predictions before the weekend for the US three-day opening had it around about 35 million. They were optimistically saying 30 to 35 million. It's 
it's a, a long film, which puts a lot of people off. It's very much a, an epic sci-fi, yeah. which whilst it's got a following, it's never really been huge. So it was a bit of an unsure set, like matter. And Villeneuve's films have never really performed great, even when they've deserved to perform a lot better. So the weekend finished and it finished on 40.1 million in the US, which was above okay. what was expected. It's a solid start for the film. It's the best that Villeneuve's films have done to date. And it's also the best that all of this year's HBO Max co-releases have performed in its first three days. That I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, that, that came as a bit of a surprise because we know that Suicide Squad had kind of flopped, but Godzilla vs. Kong is the one that people turn around and say, wow, yeah, this yeah. did so well on HBO Max and did so well at the box office. But it didn't have a strong opening at the box office. It had legs that kept it going, and it was international markets that brought it up. It could be that audiences are realising the grandiose sci- epic scale sci-fi presents better on the big screen. Yeah. It could be that audiences are just returning to cinemas more in larger numbers. Whatever it is, it certainly is a good start for the film. In IMAX, it scored 9 million of that figure. And worldwide, okay. the film is now up to 223 million, with the UK taking in 7.5 million this this weekend, which is a very strong weekend. We've seen it packed at our cinema. And we probably could have had it on a couple of more screens. It was that packed. Well, um, to interject on that, I saw it at your cinema over the weekend in, for the first time, a packed auditorium, a packed theatre. Uh, yeah. Not even Bond had a packed theatre. Or it wasn't when I saw it, but I, I know it had been. So good news. I mean, I didn't honestly expect to go into June in a packed cinema, but people came out that opening weekend for that film. Yeah. Now, um, we've known that Dunes had a release in Europe before even the UK. How well did it do there and how is that going to impact on, on, on the figures? We've always known that as a book, Dune has always done well across Europe. I mean, if you, we, you know, we talk about Jodowski's version, it was, was going to be European produced. So we know that it's always had the following across Europe, if not much more so than the UK and and probably about equal with the States. Well, the UK's opening is actually the strongest out of all the European countries for the opening weekend. The closest behind us is France, who opened earlier this early in September with seven point two million, and they they have got to twenty one point six million takings so far for them them alone. Uh, Germany did a good opening with four point four million. And they are now up to the total gross for the film's run of 17.3 million. So if we're on 7.5 million equatable to France, we'll probably be looking that by the time it's been running for four weeks, we'll be up to about 25 million taken from the UK, which is really good figures. So looking at those figures, looking at the box office across the US, UK and Europe, then the chances are, the chances are looking pretty high then to get, to get this, the sequel, which we, we yeah. know we need. Yeah, it, it, it is looking very optimistic and we are hopeful that there will be announcements pretty soon. I mean, the film is one of the rare films to have opened in China that isn't a Chinese film this year. And it's done 21 million so far there. And they're expecting it to have really good legs and play well across that territory. Right. So it's been a very, very good weekend for June, just matching what we saw 
on the limited European release. Any other box office news, Andy? Uh, well, Halloween Kills drew in another 14.5 million in the US, which is a drop of 70% on the previous week. It puts it at just under 91 million globally so far. Uh, the, the film from 2018 finished on 255 million globally. It looks like this sequel isn't going to get anywhere near there at this rate. You know, I think they, and I said this last week, I think they missed a trick by just finishing Halloween where it felt like there was a natural ending. And I and I do think that audiences are getting bored by going, well, you know, he's not really going to be dead. So yeah. we'll just, we'll be back or not. And they're, the only way that you can make that interesting is if you make the supporting characters interesting for you to come back, because you can only see a certain amount of kills, especially by the same character again and again. I, I get that it's looking tired, totally, even coming up to Halloween. And, and just think they missed the trick of, of not finishing when they could and go out with a bit of style and and, and and thinking they'd done something clever. Yeah, it's it's disappointing. As I said last week when I reviewed it, the biggest problem for me with this film is that it's no longer got the scare or the tension. It's all about the gore and the deaths. And the first Halloween film had zero blood, really. Yeah, it yeah, very it's, very, it's very blood-free. But now it's, ju- it's just bordering on like a Saw franchise by going for grotesque blood and guts and gore and that's not what we want from halloween and if you don't care about the characters who are in jeopardy then it's just a guy in a mask going around killing people in elaborate ways you've you've got to embed it you know and look at alien you've got to embed it with characters that you care about and hope that they don't die as opposed to just just the checklist of yeah they're gonna they're gonna cop it at some point uh, Bond is still holding strong in the US, keeping its third place. It had a drop off of 50% this week, and it's made it to 120 million across the US so far and 525 million worldwide. It's still yet to open in China this weekend, so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays there and where the end global figure will land once the film finishes its run. As we know, it's got a lot of heavy lifting to do, no fault of its own, you know, pandemic related. There was a lot of interest charges put onto its. Uh, onto its initial loans, and that's yeah. how movies are paid for, folks. There is no magic money tree. If it had have made it to this figure worldwide back when it was originally due out for release, it would have been considered a bit going into profit around about now. Yeah. It's the fact that there's been the extra costs of additional marketing. Three times they've had to redo all the marketing for this film because there's been the multiple release date shifts. There's the interest payments, etc. It's just compounded all the initial costs. And let's just round off the box office news with French Dispatch, which is another film that we're going to cover later in the show. In the US, it opened in only 52 theatres, a a very small limited release. But it took $1.3 million against very strong competition at the box office. And as a result, also had the best screen average this year. Oh, good. Pretty much every showing of it was selling out. It just wasn't showing in a lot of places. It makes you wonder how it would have played had it gone on a wider release. But Wes Anderson films have always had that kind of niche factor audience. And it's always difficult to assess whether or not the the limited release works better and beneficial for it than going wide with it and it just not managing to draw anyone in. In the UK, it suffered also from an over-occupied box office with too many films doing great business that you couldn't get rid of the screens, but still drew just over a million, which takes the global total so far to just under four million. Okay, and we know that Wes Anderson doesn't spend an absolute fortune on his movies. No, he keeps it very tight. And so it's it's always whether it's it's always going to be whether it's a, a it breaks even rather than it's going to be a, a huge box office. No one expects 
his films to make huge box office. They expect to break even and, and have a return. Because they'll always find their feet elsewhere as well. Yeah, I mean, Wes Anderson films are one of those kind of films that his fans, such as myself, will purchase later on home release as well. Uh, you know, so it will generate more business once it goes to a wider home release. Okay, so moving on from the box office, let's take a look at some of the other news. Because we've got quite a bit, let's be honest. Uh, we've got some. We've definitely got a sprinkling. So to spin off from the box office news, because we were heavily talking about Dune, let's stick with HBO Max. So HBO Max were apparently so impressed with the recent release of Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos prequel, not just for how it performed at the box office, which wasn't great, but particularly how it performed for the streaming service itself, that they've already begun talks with David Chase about a new Sopranos-related series for the channel. I'm not surprised. I mean, it, it's been a long time coming because there's always felt like there's more backstory to delve into this. And now we finally got Many Satan Newark to give us some hints as to what we could expect. Chase has got ideas. Chase has previously commented that if he was to return to the world, he would see a story set after the 60s or 70s events of the movie and prior to the 90s set original series. Hey, hey, David, just say the 80s. Say the 80s. You're allowed to. <laughs> but he would only do it if Teddy Winter would co-write all the scripts with him. Now, like I said, the film didn't play well at the cinemas, but the positive aspect for the streaming service was mentioned by Anne Sarnoff, the CEO of Warner Media Studios. As she said, you see The Sopranos pop into the top 10 of viewed series on the service. And it's given it an entirely new life. The movie has literally lifted all of the Sopranos franchise in a new way. You can't measure it in it in and of itself with the box office. Interestingly, she was also asked in the same interview about prospects for Dune Part 2. And this was an interesting way that she replied to this one. Will we have a sequel to Dune? If you watch the movie, you'll see how it ends. I think you pretty much know the answer to that. That suggests to me that they're already greenlighting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It needs to It needs to be continued. Uh, and, and just re as regards Saints, it, it wasn't seen as a big movie and therefore didn't get a huge distribution and wasn't a lot of publicity over it. And it sat really well on HBO Max. Yeah. And it had a feel of a HBO Max movie as opposed to a, a cinema movie, in all honesty. I liked it. I'd like to see them explore other aspects of the world that they set up within that. And there's at least one character who potentially could be the lead character and, and where to go with that spin-off and, and still stay within that environment. So I, I'm very happy to see. And, 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 you know, people talk about offshoot series as being disappointing, but there has been some great offshoot series yeah. that have, have, have been given a um, given the series a new lease of life. So I'm, I'm happy to see that world. I'm thinking of Better Call Saul. And That's what I was sure about to were. say, yeah. Better Call Saul is the perfect example of how you should, if there's an idea there, explore it because you might just get something. With, I think the Better Call Saul surpasses Breaking Bad. Yeah, at, at times I, I'll agree. Yeah. And, but they are, you're eating in the same restaurant, but you're having mm. two entirely different dishes cooked by the same chef. It's the best way to, for me to think yeah. about it. David Chase, meanwhile, has signed a five-year first look deal with Warner Media, regardless of whether he's going to make any more Sopranos stuff, but anything that he comes up with, they've got first look for the next five years. Okay, so some trailers dropped this week, and for your delectation, we have uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, Yaho Abdul-Mateen II, have a heist plan in the trailer for Michael Bay's uh, Ambulance. I still got around to seeing that trailer yet, because I'm, it's going to be even cut even faster than a normal Michael Bay film. To be fair, I watched the trailer for Ambulance, and yep. you, you know my feelings on Michael Bay. Yes, I think, I think everybody knows that. my feelings on Michael Bay. But I found myself quite intrigued. I found myself quite caught up okay. in the trailer. 
I'm probably going to be disappointed when the film comes out, but it does it doesn't look as erratic as his normal films are. Right. Well, we've also got The Lost Daughter. Olivia Coleman faces hard truths in the trailer for director Maggie Gyllenhaal's uh, debut film. Uh, being the Ricardos, Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem are Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz in the first teaser. Belfast, the new coming-of-age trailer for Kenneth Branagh's uh, new movie, landed this week. As the two big ones are, Netflix's new Red Notice trailer gives us Ryan Reynolds, Dwayne Johnson and Gal Gadot as globetrotting art thieves. And the, probably everyone's talking about is this one. Tom Holland is Nathan Drake in the Uncharted movie trailer, which I have watched. And um, OK, it kind of hits all the beats from Uncharted, which is one of my favourite games. I can see why they've gone young with Tom Holland so he can stick around for three or four films and grow into it. It just looked very, very familiar. It just didn't bring anything new to it. But the hard thing is, is you go too, too far away from the games and people will complain. You stick to the games and people will complain. It seems to be following the pattern that the more recent Tomb Raider film did. It's the trailer sells it on moments from the game that you go, I remember that bit. I remember that bit whilst it's going to play in a different way. I've seen some people commenting online. Uh, they've clearly not made this film with the gamers in mind because it looks too far gone from the games. It's like, well, of course, they're not just thinking about the gamers because, you know, <laughs> the, the, the last game of the series, which was the most popular, sold 15 million copies at an average box office ticket price of nine dollars. That would be about $135 million it would take if all those people turned up. The films mm. cost $110 million to make. So it needs the general audience who don't know the games to watch it. They never market these films, be it comic book or video game, just for the gamers. They need the general audience. That's why they need someone like Tom Holland. He's recognizable. He's identifiable. Yeah. He's a huge name. Whether you personally like him or not, is beside the point. They've cast because they know that that will draw people in. Video game movies struggle to find an audience unless yeah. they've got yeah. a big name in them. As much as you might love video games and you think everyone should love video games, shockingly, and this is going to upset you, not a huge <laughs> chunk of people do. Yeah. You're, you're possibly one of the only people in your circle who plays Bubble Bobble. I know I am, but, you know, do I want a Bubble Bobble movie? Yes. Do I think they'll make one? No, because I'm a realist. <laughs> and also the, the fact is that the whole thing about games is you are actively involved yeah. in making decisions. A movie is laid out for you. They're going to take the highlights of what makes that character work as to opposed to just doing cutscenes and, and putting together with live actors. You know, it's work it out, guys. I think the Uncharted movie, look, it looks fun, but it looks generic. Yeah, that was, that was my take say for it at the moment. Uh, Red Notice, however, you, you, quick, you quickly mentioned Red Notice, and I watched that, oh, yeah. and let's be honest, it's got Ryan Reynolds and The Rock in it. I'm over that like a rash. What was interesting is I saw the trailer for this on the big screen, and it ends the trailer with limited run on cinemas before Netflix. And it's like, oh, excellent. Netflix is stepping more and more into that territory. So I can't wait to see this one, hopefully, on the big screen. Have you seen, talking of teasers, the uh, first look at The Monsters, uh, the reboot from Rob Zombie? I've I've seen I've seen the images that have circulated. Um, I, yeah, I thought he might have gone for a cast that people would actually like to see. <laughs> I know it's a I know it's a pet project for him, and we've talked about it over the last couple of weeks that his love of the monsters uh, is uh, is well documented, and, and this is the story he's always wanted to tell. Um, for those who don't know, who the monsters are there was a uh, it was a take on the family sitcom. 
but with monsters, a Frankenstein monster uh, and a uh, Dracula-esque characters. So we've got, um, from what I know, a some of the usual Rob Zombie troupe. He always has a tendency to go for the same actors. So so we've got Herman, Lily, and Grandpa, the Count, this time played by, yes, his wife as Lily, Sherry Moon Zombie. I thought it was Jeff Daniels, but it's somebody called Jeff Daniel Phillips <laughs> uh, and Daniel Roebuck. As I said, I thought he might have gone for some recognisable cast to, to, to bring these characters to life, but he's gone with his usual uh, troupe of players. Uh, which yeah. was a surprise. Um, I mean, I'm intrigued. The, the characters certainly look like the monsters, but I am trying to remember the fact that it was a comedy. And yeah. uh, I've never seen Rob Zombie intentionally do comedy. No. But I have laughed out loud at some of his films for the wrong reason. <laughs> I'm just personally disappointed that um, Mockingbird Lane never got greenlit for a full Yeah, series. that was good. I, yeah, I was really enjoyed clever. it, but I've got a huge love for Brian Fuller's approach to it. And I think he got the comedy right. He got the style right. It just... It just didn't land for the for the network that it was made for. Shame. Yeah. Uh, filming is completed on Damien Chazelle's next film called Babylon. The director of La La Land and First Man, two great films. Yes, you know my love for First Man. His latest flick stars Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt and is set during the golden age of Hollywood as the industry was moving from silent movies to talkies. And so immediately I'm in on this film. Anything that looks back at the history of cinema, let's be honest, we're here as the film geeks on the film show for Film Geeks by Film Geeks. Of course, we're <laughs> going to be all over this. And it's a director who we've got confidence in. The film also has a cast that includes names such as Olivia Wilde, Jeff Garlin, Lucas Haas, Eric Roberts, Max Minghella, Samara Weaving, Spike Jones, and Tobey Maguire in his first live-action role in, the, in eight years. So no Ryan Gosling in that. That might be because he's working with Margot Robbie. Get this. <laughs> I don't know where this is going to go. But a, a big-screen version of Barbie. <laughs> and Ryan Gosling is playing Ken. I mean... Of course he is. I mean, that's just perfect casting, let's be honest. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. He's, he's the perfect Ken doll on screen. Yes, this is the um, Barbie film. That before you decide to fast forward past this bit of news, let's let's just mention that Greta Gerwig is directing from a script by her and Noah Baumbach, uh, other half. That so now alone, I'm intrigued. That alone makes this an interesting concept. This is not going to be just an average toy movie. This is going to be something different, something special, and something worthy. Yeah, I'm, I can't wait for this. I, Margot Robbie as Barbie. Yeah, that's perfect. Ryan Gosling as Ken. Yeah, that's perfect. Where is this going to go? This is going to be hot. We talked about this movie and our love for it on the pod, uh, Love and Monsters. Anyway, director Michael Matthews is making Merlin for Disney. So I don't know if this is a, a new take on, on Merlin or it's, uh, is it, it could even possibly be Sword in the Stone uh, because Disney do do their uh, live versions of, of their animated film. According to reports, this is going to be an adaptation of the novel series by T.A. Barron in which you see King Arthur's wizardly mentor being the central focus of the story. It's Gil Netta is going to be producing, and the latest draft for the script comes from Chris Veitz, which, uh, yeah, that's that's good name. Yeah, I like Chris Veitz. It's, it's in early developments yet, but the Disney live-action team are going to be heading forward with this as soon as they can. We've been talking about Oppenheimer for a, a last few weeks since it was announced that this would be Christopher Nolan's new film and it appears as though the female lead in that movie is going to be 
Our very own Emily Blunt. Yeah, she's she's really getting prominence in a lot of productions in recent years, and deservedly so. She's one of the best things in pretty much every film that she's been in over the past yeah. few years. Absolutely, and in a, in a strange what if universe, she would have been the Black Widow. We've we've mentioned before. We're looking forward to seeing what Nolan does with his period piece focusing on the the development of the atomic weapon uh, by Oppenheimer and how the the human drama around realizing that you're creating a world destroying device is going to impact looks great amazon have picked up garth davis's sci-fi thriller foe in a deal for more than 30 million dollars saoirse ronan and paul meskel will star in the near future set film in which corporate greed and environmental decay are ravaging the planet it's set tomorrow then <laughs> well that's that, that's pretty much it filming will start next year in australia which looks like it's been devastated by um, environmental decay and uh, corporate greed anyway and i'll be keeping my eyes out on this one and another one that i'm keeping my eye out for do you remember the 1981 comedy mel brooks's history of the world part one yeah which was the last if i remember mel brooks directed film and probably for me is most disappointing. I enjoyed, I mean, I've not seen it for ages. I enjoyed it when I watched it in my teens. It's, it was more just a series of historical related sketches yeah. covering different events in history. And it always, it teased at the end the coming soon History of the World Part 2. Well, it's going to be adapted as an eight episode TV series, which will cover other world events in a similar manner. Brooks is going to write and produce alongside Nick Kroll, Wanda Sykes, Ike Barenholtz, David Stassen, and Kevin Salter, and production set to begin in spring next year. Now, the big question is, are we going to see Hitler on ice or Jews in space, which were teased at the end of that first film? I, <laughs> I, I want Jews in space to be at least one episode. I like the idea of that more as a TV series than yeah. I do a, a follow-up film, because I don't think the world would be that interested. If, I, if I'm honest, it gives it gives them a chance to let each period in history be explored in its own little own little anthology approach. Um, so, other negotiations and casting going on. John Cena, who's rising to prominence on the screen, he's not a great mm-hmm. actor, but recently he's impressed in a couple of roles, most specifically Peacemaker. But he's now in negotiations to star in Taken director Pierre Morel's action comedy Freelance. The story for this one, Cena is hopefully going to be playing a special forces operator who retires from the army to start a family back home. And after several years of trying to conform to life in the American suburbs, he decides to come out of retirement to take a gig, providing security for a female journalist as she interviews a cruel dictator who may or may not have ordered the attack on him and his men. Uh, Productions officially started on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which was revealed by Chris Pratt this week. The film will take place after the events of the upcoming Thor Love and Thunder. I say upcoming, it's sometime down the line, but it is upcoming. But we already know, as we've reported previously, that Adam Warlock will make an appearance, played by Will Poulter. And Gunn has also confirmed that Guardians of the Galaxy 3 wasn't impacted by the recently announced delays and is still set for May the 5th, 2023. And to round off on other Marvel-related news, Sony has announced two untitled films for the SSU, the Sony Spider-Man universe, set for 2023. One of them for June 2023 and another for October. They will join the already named Craven the Hunter movie, which is set for January 2023. And speculation over the film's titles has obviously begun, with some suggesting that the, <laughs> the long-rumoured Madam Web film or the long-rumoured Jackpot film will be one of them. And others also think that the October one will be a 
perfect time to drop a fast-tracked third Venom film. Mm. It's done well enough, hasn't it, Venom, to uh, to warrant a third film, even though yeah. we, we, as we talked about it, there was a huge drop off on it now, um, but it's it made its budget on the first week. Yeah, it's garnered enough interest and in, enough financial interest to to look at a third film. Uh, the only thing I hope they do is I hope they stick with Andy Serkis as director because at least he, he he brings something fresh to it. Yeah, in a way that the, the first film just felt a bit bland. Yeah, and that is for this week the news. <laughs> Thanks for joining us each week on The Film File. We love doing the show. No, we really do love bringing you the show. What we'd like you to do, though, in return, is head over and subscribe to The Film File on your favourite podcast platform. And remember to hit that like button. And then all you have to do is tell a friend. And then they'll tell a friend. And eventually, by the year, I don't know, 2038, Andy and I will be ruling the world. If you want to know more about The Film File, all you have to do is head over to Twitter, where you can find us at Film File UK. Pop over to Instagram, where you can follow us, Film File UK. Or you can email us in with any comments, suggestions, likes, dislikes, agony uncle for the, for, for the film geek community over here, waiting for that <laughs> first message to pick me up on this one. Podcast at filmfile.uk. And don't forget, if you're listening to the podcast, look at the podcast description. There's a little link in there. You can follow that and actually leave us a voice message. Anything that you like. If it's abusive, we'll just shrug it off and just say, that was childish. Uh, But if it's something interesting, we may raise it in the show. So as regular listeners know, we do every week a deep dive into films that we like, think are classic, or just worthy of talking about. This week, we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of talking about one film, we're going to be talking about a whole genre of films. We're going to be looking at Hong Kong cinema, in particular, martial arts movies. So both Andy and I come to uh, Hong Kong cinema and martial arts movies from two particular points, uh, and that's due to where our influences start. So the Hong Kong cinema is a global industry, and the action films from that country combined elements of Hollywood with Chinese and Hong Kong culture and even Chinese opera. Storytelling and aesthetics traditions, along with new action choreography and filmmaking techniques, were used and are still used to create culturally distinctive film form that has spread across the world and in turn influenced Hollywood movies of today. Just think of The Matrix, just think of John Wicks. All those have been heavily influenced by the Hong Kong genre conventions from, well, for me, from the 1970s onwards. The first Hong Kong action films favoured what's known as the Wusu style, emphasising mysticism with swordplay and what's now known as wire work. But the trend was politically suppressed in the 1930s and in the 1960s, the Kung Fu film hit the world with down-to-earth, unarmed martial arts, featuring at first folk heroes and then developing into creating their own heroes. And, And the main production company 
responsible for that were the Shaw Brothers. In the in the sixties, the prominence of Chinese cinema was mostly it was mostly soap operatic and musical and dance routines, very theatrical, very beautiful, very grandiose. The Shaw Brothers came along and thought, can we take that and add in some fights, choreographed like dance moves, to embrace that kind of aspect and draw people along into into telling more impactful action-based stories. And that's where they originated their style of wushu filmmaking with grand tales about daring adventurers. They hit the, hit the market in China with a huge success straight away and basically started to be churned out like a machine. They would be making four or five films at a time with cast sometimes working on one set, then going straight over to another one to do a routine on another one and then to another one before going to their big apartments where they all live together and then getting up for work the next day and doing multiple things again. It was a huge machine and they were coming out left, right and centre. And then the Hong Kong riots and strikes hit in 1967. And at that point, the films became more bloody and more violent as a reaction to all the protests that were going on. Usually the stories started to lean towards lone protagonist rebelling against the unfair system, rich overlords, or even Japanese oppression, which was a key theme in a lot of the late 60s to late 70s martial arts films. They were youth energy films of the moment, and they blew up in popularity. And it was at this point that they latched onto the American audiences, because in America at the time of the late 60s through to the early 70s, there was movements and rebellions going on, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movements, and so on, all resonating with the themes that the Chinese films were starting to bring into it. And that's when the industry just exploded. It exploded in such a culturally unique way. And this is where mine and yours, even though we're close in age, we're just slightly that other side of the border of the generation gap that you latched onto it from the 70s ones as a result. Absolutely. I mean, one of my favourite all-time movie stars, and, and I use the term absolutely movie star, was was Bruce Lee. And like the rest of the world in, in the early 70s, I got caught up in the in the Kung Fu craze and it was a craze. I mean, traditionally, as Andy's just mentioned, from the earliest 20th century right through to the 60s, a lot of Kung Fu and martial arts movies were, and, and no one can actually say which was which was the first because they actually started off with silent films, were these uh, uh, based on, on a lot of Chinese tradition. There was a lot of mysticism and part of that, a reliance on, on, on sort of the Chinese opera side of it, highly stylized. But in the 1970s, with the new wave of, of Kung Fu movies and, and the craze, you got much more, much more realistic. And I, and I use that with a very small R, more streety kind of, of, uh, of fighting techniques. And you made some big, big stars through the Shaw Brothers, people like Jimmy Wang Yu and um, Angela Mao and, of course, Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee was the element that that took uh, the Kung Fu craze over over to the US. And, and the popularity was just so big that all the small independent cinemas that were around there, the exploitation cinemas, could fill their theatres with these low-budget, unusually pretty badly dubbed uh, Kung Fu movies. And, and they became influential to a lot of filmmakers from today. And, and some of the ones that stands out, uh, stand out at the time is... Uh, is um, it's things like the one-armed boxer and 30th chamber of Shaolin and 
The Fist of Fury and my, my particular favorite, Bruce Lee's Where the Dragon, the first film that he directed. And they were so stylized and they were beautifully, beautifully choreographed. Uh, and, and Bruce Lee just was just an, an amazing screen presence, not only a, a, a fantastic martial artist in his own right, and probably one of the great martial artists, but he had the same kind of charisma and the same kind of star quality as someone like Steve McQueen. Yeah. And if he'd have lived, which unfortunately he passed away very, very young, I think he would have been making cleverer and a more important martial arts films. But, but sadly, we lost him at an early age. But if you are looking to go back and look at uh, the popularity of Bruce Lee, then you start with the big boss. But it's Fist of Fury where, for me, the Kung Fu style, the, the, the way of seeing Lee fight, because they weren't quick action shots. They were very long held shots. And you just saw the you saw the choreography play out in front of you uh, where the dragon is the one that co-starred Chuck Norris. But it was Enter the Dragon, which was a co-production with the Shaw Brothers and Warner Brothers that made the Kung Fu craze absolutely land. And unfortunately, it was the last completed film of Bruce Lee. And it is an absolutely stunning film we've talked about it on this show but after that you got the what was known as the faux lee movies which emerged featuring either performers who adopted similar street uh, screen names like bruce lie bruce lay bruce lee spell li uh, and used outtake footage of lee or sometimes a combination of both and it was quite disrespectful and probably the worst of that is called the clo the many clones of bruce lee which is an absolutely awful awful posthumous treatment of, of uh, Lee himself, but uh, it overshadowed a lot of, of the Hong Kong films. And then along came Jackie Chan. Yeah. So whilst you kind of embraced, you, you embraced the martial arts films through all the Shaw Brothers ones, I came into it. I mean, before I get to Jackie Chan, it's worth noting that I was introduced to the martial arts kind of wuxia through monkey TV series, right. which told the ongoing tales of the monkey King. And I, I, I love the co comedy aspects. I love the acrobatic aspects. I love the fantasy setting. And maybe it's the fact that that was very comical and acrobatic that I ended up latching on to when Jackie Chan started to gain prominence. Now, it's worth noting that Jackie Chan was turned down by the Shaw Brothers. They didn't see a way to market him. They didn't think that he fitted with their brand. And so Golden Harvest, who were just up and coming at the time, nabbed him and stole him away. And that has to be one of the biggest mistakes that the Shaw Brothers did. The Shaw Brothers were sticking to the template, sticking to the formula and continuing to make their style. Whereas Golden Harvest started to expand out and realize that you can approach different audiences with different styles of martial arts films. And Jackie Chan was their prime focus. His acrobatic, comedic way of approaching it and the very, very risky and dangerous and sometimes deadly stunts that he got away with on set due to the no restrictions, no health and safety gone mad here. This was whatever you want to do, Jackie, you do it. Absolutely enthralled audiences. For me, it was films like Wheels on Meals, Armour of God and Project A, and then later Police Story 1 and 2 that really drew me into it. I loved his, his clear inspiration was Buster Keaton movies. He I was, was inspired thoroughly by the silent movie era and he demonstrated it in so many routines. In Police Story itself, there's a whole Buster Keaton inspired sequence with him chasing a bus down and then latching onto the back of it with an umbrella. And that is straight from the silent movie era. I have just recently taught uh, silent film and taught Buster Keaton. And because the students could, didn't quite get 
silent movie and certainly didn't get get keaton i managed to to embrace jackie chan within that sort of tradition of very very physical comedy that that was was purely stunt based and and there is the correlation between the two now it's interesting you talk about tv because i never got monkey and i always like my my martial arts a bit gritty but my my main introduction because i couldn't go and see the movies at that particular time uh, was the Kung Fu TV series, which mm. you know many have said was a ripoff of uh, an idea that that Bruce Lee had brought to American television for a series called The Warrior, and um, Kung Fu was a little bit racially, shall we say, on difficult ground by not casting a, an Asian actor, uh, and had David Carradine in the lead role, who interestingly enough went on to study martial arts after uh, that that particular series. So um, TV played a big part for it, but you can't knock the huge influence that that martial arts movies have had on and, and action movies and those kinds of stunts had on international cinema. And I mean, post sort of Jackie Chan and, you know, Jackie Chan was introduced into into Hollywood films, usually teamed up with a a, a Western actor to, to provide the dialogue, if you, for want of a better term, because they usually be teamed up with somebody who was funny. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of, of, and it was one of my favourites, um, Shanghai Noon, for instance, where he's teamed mm. up with Owen Wilson. But cinema started to change again, and we start to move away from the Jackie Chan movies to to movies like the Sue Hark and and uh, those sorts of movies, and then to John Woo, and and that was again a new form of of action, and how that influenced Hollywood. Yeah, the John Woo era of filmmaking is the inspiration for films such as John Wick these days. He introduced not just martial arts, but he introduced gunplay and what's now referred to as gun fu, where. That the use of firearms is so perfectly melded with hand-to-hand fighting that it seems like it's a fluid connection between the two. And early John Woo Hong Kong films, I mean, John Woo kind of went off the boil when he um, moved across yeah. to the US. And he became it became, you go and see a John Woo film and you just tick the boxes of, oh, look, there's uh, white doves flying against a burning background. There's a, a gunfight in a church, etc. He fell into his own tropes but his early films were absolutely fascinating. They completely, me, me and my mates, around about the age of 18, 19, we would be renting these out on VHS and watching them over and over again. All of that era of films, which introduced us to names like Chow Young-Fat, um, who was very prominent in that action theatre at the time. And I want to give a quick shout out mention to one of my favourite stars of the martial arts film industry that really connected with me, not just Jackie Chan, but it came from Jackie Chan that was introduced to the joy of Sammo Hung. Sammo is, you you expect your martial arts stars to be, you know, Bruce Lee style physique, svelte (laughs) and like athletic. And you look at Sammo and go, there's no way he can do anything. And then he does backflips, cartwheels, somersault kicks, and just like, oh man, this guy's good. And there's a film that got remade in recent years by Donnie Yen, um, Enter the Fat Dragon, that Sammo Hung was the original one. Don't watch the remake. It's dreadful because Donnie Yen is not fat, so he's wearing a fat suit. Sammo Kung had that physique, but could do the acrobatics with that physique, and it makes it so much more impactful. He's a great, he's a great comic fighter. He's a great serious actor fighter. He's just one of the stars for me of the industry. Whenever I see his name tagged to anything, I'm like, I need to see that. I quickly mentioned uh, Sue Hark, which is, yeah. we could spend a, a, enough time on that, who brought back a lot of the tradition of, of, of Chinese cinema. And he brought back uh, 
in a way that kept pushing boundaries with special effects and, and replacing that rough and ready, low budget style of the 70s into much more sophisticated, much more glossy, much more visual storytelling. And also brought in those supernatural elements again and, and went back to you know movies like The Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain and especially Chinese Ghost Story, which if you've not had a chance to see, which was directed not by, by Sue Stark, but uh, uh, Cinema City. And, and those movies were absolutely beautiful and, and covered completely different ground than, than what John Woo was doing. And also people like Ringo Lam. So if you get a chance to see Ringo Lam City on Fire, um, starring Chow Young-Fat, um, they really pushed the genre, which again, as you said, they wouldn't have been a John Wick without those films and, and again introduced a, a brand new style to it. But interesting enough, over the last few years, we've seen the reintroduction of Waifu or Wusu again. And we're getting those through the 90s up to, to present day, these these beautiful, high-budget, almost art film martial arts movies. Now, you're going back to films like Once Upon a Time in China, you get Hero and House of Flying Daggers, which are just sumptuous-looking, huge-budget films. And you've got the, the brand-new wave of, of new martial artists that, that were coming through. And eventually, all these guys end up working in, in the States, but people like Donnie Yen, who, who went on to, to do the Ip Man series, which is, which is well worth seeing. And then we started moving even further with, with, with the movies like Stephen Chow's films, uh, Shaolin Soccer and my particular favourite, Kung Fu Hustle. Hustle. And, and they just keep introducing new elements. Every time the, the, the martial arts films become stale, something brand new happens with it and it's taken further and explored. And eventually that works its way back over to, the, uh, to, to Western filmmaking and, and notably things like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which, which is a, captures all the elements from those films. Uh, uses the 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 wusu wirework stuff, uh, and then and that even takes moves on into things like the Matrix and and as you as we keep saying, John Wick. The influence on Western cinema, you know, was prominent from the late eighties onwards when you saw stars such as Van Damme rising to the forefront of you know a lot of straight to VHS releases. But his name was everywhere when it came to like kickboxing and Western martial arts. Uh, the VHS era when loads of films were just getting dropped from Hong Kong theatre onto VHS, allowed anyone who wanted to learn the style and learn the techniques to pause, rewind, and copy the moves that they saw in the films that they loved, and are responsible for names that are around today, such as Scott Adkins, who's one of the most frequently seen in any martial arts film actors from the West that you'll see. And he's He's got a video channel on YouTube that is well worth checking out because he gives some great insights into the industry. And he says that he used to just sit and just watch these films over and over again and realized that's what I want to do. I want to be in those kind of films. And that's why he got interested in learning martial arts. The influence of Hong Kong cinema, I mean, it, it influenced us, but it never made us want to go out and um, learn martial arts because I could probably be a Sammo Hung with my physique, but uh, <laughs> I don't think I've got the I don't think we've got the muscle in there. But they just it, it's like you said, the evolving nature of them to be able to adopt. I mean, Shaolin soccer is possibly one of the most bizarre melds yes. with martial arts that you can possibly get. But it works. You've even got films such as The Raid, a Welshman who directed a film in Indonesia that has some of the best choreographed fight scenes that we've seen in recent years. And all of these took inspiration from that history of kung fu movies. These are films being made today that are being made by people who grew up 
watching them on VHS and wanting to emulate them and bring them to the big screen themselves. If I could get a budget to make a film and had an idea to make one, I would ensure that there's a few martial arts sequences in there as a result of my love for the genre. My entry point might have been later than yours, but as a result, I've backtracked and gone backwards to fill in the gaps and watch things like Five Fingers of Death and, you know, all the Bruce Lee films because there's something about it that just draws you in. It's now so synonymous with the industry of martial arts that it's crossed over genres. We've got a Marvel film that is a martial arts wushu film. Yeah, absolutely. Shang-Chi is a wushu film through and through. It's got the mythical aspects. It's got the choreographed fights. We've mentioned multiple times John Wick, and you mentioned at the head of this, The Matrix, a film that most people don't think as a martial arts film. They just think, oh, it's sci-fi. But no, it's a martial arts film through and through, just given a sci-fi edge. Yeah, and that use of wire work in it as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's everywhere. It's mainstream now. It's no longer just cultish and renting dodgy VHSs, which are badly dubbed by someone who didn't really get the script right, but just made up some words. These are now full epics. I'm going to give you some recommendations for films that I think uh, are well worth watching. So, of course, I'm going to start with Bruce Lee. I'm going to recommend Fist of Fury, Way of the Dragon, and of course, Enter the Dragon. From John Woo, well, where to start? Killer is probably his most famous, but I would highly recommend because I think it's a breakthrough film, A Better Tomorrow. The Chinese Ghost Story from Suhark and Cinema City, uh, if you want your Kung Fu with a supernatural edge. The Ip Man series basically captures, based on a, a real-life character, the, the guy who trained Bruce Lee. It does fall into the fancy of being, of course, it's based on a real person, but fictional. But they are well worth watching and, and sticking through the entire series for. Some are better than others, but the the initial uh, Yip Man was, was very, very good. Andy, any recommendations? I mean, alongside those, I will point out that people who have Amazon Prime can treat themselves to Once Upon a Time in China and also yeah, Chinese choice. Ghost Story over there at the moment. If you want some Jackie Chan, then get buying the discs that have been released by Eureka Classics because all the other ones are keeping the dubbed versions or low quality ones. These are restoring them and adding, like giving you the original dialogue ones with subtitles, but also giving you the alternate cuts because some releases got 15 minutes extra on Japanese release or in different territories. And it presents the multiple choices that you can watch. Absolutely brilliant discs. Pick them up on Amazon, 15 quid, double bills for Police Story 1 and 2 or Project A. One and two. Slightly much more up to date. Hero, we mentioned, and yes. House of Flying Daggers. Both well worth seeing. And and, and just taking uh, a movie that isn't a particular piece of Chinese cinema, but influenced it, I'd recommend Kiss of the Dragon by Luc Besson. Yeah. That starred someone we've not talked about, Jet Li. And I also want to mention a film that I was obsessed with in my late teenage years. And that is Tiger on Beat, or Tiger on the Beat, as the Western title gave it, by Lau Kar Leung. Now, Lau Carl Young had worked on films such as 36 Chamber of Shaolin and Drunken Master 2 with Jackie Chan. So that's my entry point into it. Uh, Tiger on Beat stars Chow Yun-Fat, Nina Lee Chi and Conan Lee. And it's an action comedy, a Lethal Weapon-esque kind of approach to an investigation into a crime. But it, it impacted on me for some of the choreographed fights in this, including one of the best uses of weapons in a warehouse takedown. That is a duel with chainsaws. Yes, buzzing chainsaws, sparking off each other. It is fantastic. Well worth checking out. 
So there's a wealth out there. Once you start digging down the rabbit hole of martial arts films, you will get recommendations and notice adverts for other ones further and further. And there's just so much to draw upon. You can't recommend enough of them. So just just go out there and treat yourself. Now, as we've been doing in previous weeks, I ran a poll over on Twitter this week to do with the martial arts films. And I picked four stars to do a poll against to see who is the favourite. And the four stars from different eras. So you've got Bruce Lee, you've got Jackie Chan, you've got Jet Li, and then you've got more recently Donnie Yen. And the results came in. Jet Li, sadly, we weren't the only people to forget him because no one (laughs) voted for Jet Li. I think that's a shame. I think he, yeah, I think maybe it's unfair that he was up against the other three. Donnie Yen came in with 12.5% of the votes. Bruce Lee got 31.3% of the votes, but well in the lead with 56.3% was Jackie Chan. Interesting. I think is probably more demonstrating that, I mean, as I've said, that we are slightly from different areas. And yeah. I think it's the people who voted were probably from my era that thanks to Channel 4 did a whole season of Jackie Chan films. And that would have introduced a load of people of my generation to the delights of Jackie Chan. And also he's the one who's become more prominent in the mainstream sense. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. And he's, he's probably more uh, relatable to a to a newer audience. Um, it's a yeah. shame about Jet Li, though. I think... With Jet Li, unless you've seen some of the, the Chinese films, apart from, say, Kiss of the Dragon, they're, yeah. they're much better than, than the, the stuff he did for, for Hollywood. Yeah. Okay, we'll have another deep dive for you next week. So, as Andy said at the top end of the program, we both have seen the same <laughs> films. Can you imagine it? The world's a changing place. So, I did a double bill. I did Dune and The French Dispatch. So, let's start with The French Dispatch, the new film. From Wes Anderson. Let us take a sightseeing tour. Discover the world of the French Dispatch. Bit of sports, bit of crime, bit of politics. It's a rocket ship ride to your cinematic soul. Do students of the table dream in flavors? Positively exuberant with stars of the silver screen. Physically or metaphorically? Both. It's Wes Anderson's most innovative and beautiful movie yet. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. Yes. The French Dispatch. So before we start, I think we can certainly say, between the both of us, this is the most Wes Anderson of all Wes Anderson (laughs) films. And even all of his other films are so Wes Anderson. So the staff of a high-end magazine, The French Dispatch, are putting together their final issue. Alongside obituaries and travel, it features stories of artistic prisoners, revolutionary students, and the role of fine dining in the kidnapping of a police commissioner's son. This is less a film and more of a portmanteau. This is a magazine on screen that includes illustrations, journalistic voices, all wrapped up in Anderson's narrative features. This is Anderson working near the peak of his powers and the intricacies of his movie style, mixing animation, live action, black and white, of course, his fantastic set pieces, and of course, his infectious sense of fun. Andy, for you, and I think we might agree on this one, is it one of Wes Anderson's best? I feel that it's it's high up there. It's very high up there. As a huge fan of Wes Anderson, there's everything that I love about Wes Anderson. Because we've been looking forward for this for ages. Yeah. it's Because there's a series of vignettes, he basically has a chance to explore all his own different styles through 
there's key three key stories that have their own feel. So it's the most Wes Anderson film because it's everything that Wes Anderson can do. And because of the way that it's presented, none of it feels out of place or disjointed with the rest of it because it's separate stories. And it's not, I mean, Rushmore is still going to be my favourite. Grand Budapest Hotel will still be high up there. And Isle of Dogs and Fantastic Mr. Fox will still take precedence over this. But this is one that after I watched it, I was like, I really love that. I'm not sure how much, but within 24 hours, I knew that I wanted to watch it again. So it definitely puts it high up on the pedestal. It's it's in amongst your yeah, uh, Royal Tenenbaums and your Life Aquatics for me. It's that ranking. I mean, bearing in mind that my lowest ranked Wes Anderson film is three stars for Bottle Rocket. And then everything else is four stars and above. It's not bad to say it's not in his, it's not in his top films. It's basically still a great film. It is. And it's... When we say it's it's Wes Anderson at his most Wes Anderson, of course there's the framing, but there there are drifts into animation, there are drift into the absurd. We've got the usual cast of players that include uh, uh, Tilda Swinton as an art correspondent. Um, we've got Adrian Brody as an as a uh, an art dealer. This time we have Francis McDormand in the flesh. Uh, Timothy Chalamet, uh, Matthew Ardard, Jeffrey Wright appearing, of course, Willem Dafoe. Oh. And you can't have a Wes Anderson movie without Bill Murray. The film is basically an exploration of Murray's character via the people who write pieces for his journal. And it's presented as though we, the reader and the watcher, are working through the magazine in like page order. And so when the chapter breaks come up, it tells you which pages that article covers. And then the journalist who's responsible for that presents that article in their own unique way. My favourite of them being Jeffrey Wright's food journalist who writes very little about food in his his section, the private dining room of the police commissioner. And each one of the sections is then finished with Bill Murray's editor discussing with the writer on expenses or what things need to be added or need to be edited. And then just basically just going, oh, well, we'll just accept it and walking off. And it's it's great. It, it, the character that Murray's playing, we learn so much about him by the people who work for him. And it gives it a great poignancy because it is all about this very final issue of the French Dispatch, a love letter to journalists set at the outpost of an American newspaper in the fictional 20th century is how the film's been described. And that is what it is, completely right down to its soul. It allows Anderson to showcase all his visual styles, all his visual flares, everything that his fans love about him, but also everything that people who don't get Wes Anderson hate about him. Because if you have never been enamoured by Wes Anderson, you are going to struggle a lot with this film. Yeah, this is not your entry point to Wes Anderson at all. Out of the three major stories, and and we've got the fantastic little sequence with Owen Wilson uh, cycling around the fictitious (laughs) town, which is is a, a story unto itself. But the three main stories... Uh, you mentioned the Jeffrey Wright one, which which was the all-out winner uh, and probably the most Wes Anderson of it. The first one, uh, Benicio del Toro, uh, about an imprisoned artist, was okay. Um, the second one's the weakest, uh, Tim- Timothy Chalamet one. Um, and that was interesting, though, because it was rare for a Wes Anderson film because it kind of flirted a little bit with, with real-world mm. politics and, and actually stepped into a real world rather than the, the universe that he, he, that he creates on it. It was perhaps too much, and going to using this metaphor of food, it was it was probably a, too much of an overbearing uh, meal, too many flavours, beautifully laid out. With an inch of its life, it's it's the most delectable looking dish. I just don't, not all the flavours landed for me. But even as you said, a, a, a Wes Anderson film that 
that's still still great within Wes Anderson movies. <laughs> it's as simple as that. It wouldn't be the one that I'll go back to instantly. Um, I'd rather say I Love Dogs again than this. But if, if everything you you have in there is what you come to expect from a Wes Anderson film. It doesn't break the mould. It just overflavors his usual style. The cast list in this film is huge. It would take an eternity to rattle off all the names of everyone who pops up, even just for brief cameos. But all the regulars are present and correct, and the new additions are marvellously placed, as you'd expect. And this justifies the reason that whenever I'm asked, oh, which director would you like such and such a person to work for? I automatically default to Wes Anderson because he gets the best out of everyone. He knows how to utilise everyone. And highlights in this are, of course, Bill Murray. Benicio Del Toro is greatly placed. Owen Wilson, as always, is charmingly comical throughout. Timothy Chalamet is absolutely stands out. I mean, it might be one of the weakest parts of the film. It might be the weaker of the three stories, but he is magnificent in it. Ed Norton pops up. Always a delight to see him pop up in a Wes Anderson film. Lee Schreiber interviewing Jeffrey Wright. Like you said, that's one of the best parts of the film. That's a whole section, and I completely agree. And it's the chemistry between those two as interviewer and writer and the way that the story's told that makes it work so well. It's not quite perfect. The mid-chapter, I agree, does sag a little, but only a little. Uh, but I relished the detail. I relished the artistic manner in which it was presented. Every single moment could be taken and hung as a portrait on a wall. It's that beautiful a film. Yeah, just to mention the cast, I thought I thought Elizabeth Moss was underused. I, I didn't even know that um, Jason Schwartzman was in there. <laughs> but but standouts for me were, were Tilda Swinton, as ever, just a chameleon of an actor. Uh, Leia Sadeo, we just saw on the back end of Bond. Jeffrey Wright is just proving to be one of my favourite go-to actors. And as you said, it, it, is, uh, it is a joy. It's different and yet exactly the same as every other Wes Anderson film in the fact that it is uh, beautifully designed, beautifully put together and, and crafted, as, as you said, almost artistically. Yeah. And that is The French Dispatch. So the second half of our Timothy Chalamet double bill, <laughs> or certainly for me, is Denis Villeneuve's long-awaited adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. We're about to enter warm territory. Warm always comes. Always. It's here! We've been waiting for this for well over a year. So Dune tells the story of the battle for the control of the known universe via the control of the most valuable resource, the spice from the desert planet of Arrakis. There's intrigue, suspense and prophecy aplenty. When House Atreides, led by Duke Leto, is assigned by the Padishah Emperor to oversee spice production and the House Harkonnen are removed after a long rule, it's set into motion a chain of events destined to alter the balance of power in the known universe forever. Paul Atreides, the son of Leto and his Bene Gesserit concubine Jessica, has begun having visions of the future, of danger, threat and of a girl with stark blue eyes. And there is a prophecy that hints that he may be the one to lead the Fremen, the natives of Dune, to victory over the oppression of their planet. Can you tell I've read this book multiple times? <laughs> I'm so glad you did that, because I, I, you can't talk about Dune without referencing at some point David Lynch's version. And to some extent, you can't talk about Dune without mentioning Jodorowsky's 14-hour planned epic that was to have uh, Mick Jagger in and Salvador Dali and uh, was going to be, what was it going to be? Yeah, 14 hours. Uh, to, to, to capture it. Um, and both are important talking about Villeneuve's film, B- 
because what they've what he's done, he's taken all those elements that didn't work out of Lynch's version and needed the time of, of Jarabaski's version to create this huge tapestry of a movie, which for the first time, and I didn't get this when I saw Lynch's version, had a clear run-through story. Now, we're going to mention that the film has been cut into two halves, and if you listen to the beginning of the program when we're talking about uh, box office for this, that there is an ending to this film which doesn't conclude the storyline. It just concludes this particular film, and we await part two. And what this film gets right that Lynch, Lynch didn't is the fact that Lynch tried to cram as much as possible. Now, there's, there's the legend that there was an original four-hour cut of the film and the through storyline, Paul Atreides' journey from son of a, of a nobleman into a, into a messiahic figure got kind of lost by everything else in this sort of dream version of uh, Lynch's version. And, and everything was much more clear, the clarity of the storytelling, the clarity of where this is going and the, the time that this film has to, to be able to talk about it. What do you think? Am I am I hitting the nail on the head this time? Yeah, um, the pacing is what really helps. The, the Lynch film suffered by being chopped and edited so haphazardly that in order to tell the story, they ended up having to do voiceover monologues. The, the start of the Lynch film basically has someone talking to the audience to explain the background. Then it goes on to a computerized representation describing all the planets and all the houses of the the universe that it's set in. And it's like, this should have been part of the natural flow of the story. Yeah. Villeneuve has approached it that you learn the background as the story is progressing. You learn that just from throwaway lines of dialogue, that the emperor is somehow manipulating these events for his benefit for some reason. You learn that the Harkonnens are working alongside the Emperor and being assigned his troops. You don't have to be told it. You pick it up naturally. And that's why it works better. Villeneuve is one who always takes time to present something anyway. You saw it in all of his films, that he doesn't just quickly show you something and then move on. He lets a shot linger. And in this film, letting shots linger lets you appreciate everything about it. The set design, the costume design, the ships, the ornithopters, everything is given enough time on screen to deliver the grandeur of this whole whole epic and it is an epic the book is huge to adapt this into one film when lynch did it was folly complete folly the sci-fi channel did it as a mini series and it worked better for telling the story but it didn't have the budget to do it justice here we've got half the story and we've got enough time to deliver that half of the story and make it feel worthy and make you want to see the next part of it. This, for me, as a huge fan of the book and a a fan of Villeneuve, and I've been championing for this film ever since it was first announced, I went in, and it was a possibility that it wouldn't deliver to my expectations, but it surpassed them. It absolutely blew me away. It became, well, I said last week, maybe one film this week will be my first five-star film of this year. This is my first five-star film of this year. As soon as the end credits came up, I wanted to watch it straight away again. For the whole two-and-a-half-hour runtime, I wasn't bored. I wasn't distracted. I was captivated, enraptured, and just drawn along with a story that I already know intricately. But it was like I was experiencing it for the first time again. It was marvellous. I I totally agree. I think what you said there about uh, never being bored, it's, it's... 
it's not a lethargic, it's, it's not a sprint, this movie. It's a, it's a light run. And I think credit to Villeneuve and to Joe Spates and Eric Roth, who worked on the script, they give it enough political intrigue after all the things that we've watched over the last few years on TV, like Game of Thrones and even Succession. They make it surprisingly lightweight. And not to take away any, any text from it, but it is a story of politics. And it is a story about one young man who uh, it could be some kind of chosen one, some, uh, where there is a prophecy. And they made it, they didn't make it otherworldly apart from the world that it lived in. Do you, do you see where I'm going with this, Andy? Yeah. yeah. It, it, it could be a story of of any family business <laughs> a takeover attempt yeah. told and this happens to be told in the future at the other end of the galaxy and that's why it, it, it worked for my, my partner watched it who's not a massive science fiction fan and and, and I'm, I'm so surprised bought into it in, in a positive way that she walked away and loved it and again would want to see it but he made it accessible because he made it about the intrigue of politics and, and played down some of the more fanciful uh, elements that Lynch put in, the dreamlike quality that, that Lynch brought into it without ever losing track of what the, the source material is. I mean, there's there's a lot to take in and he streamlined it into a coherent storyline because Dune's not coherent. Certainly the, the Lynch version isn't. And I, I remember walking away from Dune going, I enjoyed that. Don't ask me what was going, what went on. <laughs> Worms, prophecies, heroes. This is the best way to tell it is streamline the story into those basic elements. The fact that Duke, uh, Leo Orchades is tasked by the Emperor to take over and rule that, that desert planet of Acarius, a.k.a. June of the title, uh, home of the most valuable substance in the galaxy. It didn't really spend time telling you what the spice is. Uh, I'm sure there's more elements to that. We just know that it's, will be it's possible for, for space travel and so <laughs> much more, and that there is an opposing force, the Brutal House, Akanan has successfully overseen this operation for 80 years and they're pretty unhappy because the emperor is playing chess with these two houses. You could, it, it, it's succession to yes. a degree and that's why it worked. He made it accessible and also he made just a beautiful looking film that never feels like a, a special effect. Even though we're seeing these huge ships, and he did the same, he's done the same before he did it in, in Blade Runner, and he certainly did it in Arrival, that he, he makes it with that cool palette and, and his own visual identity. And while it is always astonishing, it always feels real. These huge ships hanging in the air are a part of that world. They're never drawn attention to. You never go, oh, look, there's a big, dirty, great spaceship. Mm. It's just part of the part of the scenery you can't talk about this film without talking about the cast that he lined up to play yeah. all these roles and what a brilliant cast chalamet is so well placed as paul he's unsure of his growing abilities and the prophecy foretold for him rebecca ferguson stands out immensely in previous adaptations Je you never really got the conflict of emotions that jessica feels from the the conflicts caused by her benny jesuit ways and teachings to her own love for her son and her love for duke leto himself and here, you can see her struggling and torn as to whether she can go through with the decisions that she has to go through with. You, she portrays it perfectly. She's an absolute majestic 
majestically placed member of the cast. Then you've got like Josh Brolin, Jason Momoa, Zendaya, Oscar Isaac, Dave Bautista, the perfect beast Raban as far as I'm concerned, David Dasmalchian, Javier Bardem. Everyone stands out, but the one who stood out the most for me, and this is a representation that I was so worried that would get wrong, and it's Stellan Skarsgård as the grotesque Baron Harkonnen. Mm. He's obscene, he's obese, He's supported by gravitational stabilizers. He plays it eccentrically, but also cold and calculating. And there's definitely, well, from the very first scene, he he showed where his inspiration was coming from when it could have just been a shot of Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now because he's leaning forward, stroking his bald head, coming out the shadows. And it's like, that's where he's drawn his inspiration from. And Mm. that is who Baron Harkonnen should be. He's cold. He's calculating. He's unstable. and. I felt that it was portrayed perfectly. Uh, the other character that you have to mention is the score by Hans Zimmer. Yes, it is a character, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it, it's a, an atypical Hans Zimmer without being an atypical Hans yes. Zimmer. We seem to have done a lot of that in this particular <laughs> uh, episode. It's got echoes of the kind of works that he did with Nolan on things like Inception. But here it really works and it helps that big big screen immersive sound aspect of the cinema cinema environment being the essential way to watch this. Um, yeah, I totally agree. And I think one of the other elements that I, I think worked as well and that gave it gave it a contemporary feel was was the hints of colo- of, of, of colonialism and the hints mm. of big industry moving into into countries or in this case planets and destroying it for for the for the native population there. And I thought giving it that sense, which I I've not read the books, I don't know if it, it's in that but it yeah. made it feel contemporary for me. Fingers crossed we will get here news of a greenlit part two soon. Villeneuve has already said that now all the foundation has been laid, the next part will be more action. And knowing the book, yes, it will be. Uh, there's a lot to come. It's one of them that I know there's loads of people who've never read the books, but I, I, there's so many spoilers that I want to talk about, but I can't because they would spoil their enjoyment of the next film. So this next film needs to get made as quick as possible so I can talk more about Dune. Yeah, absolutely. This is a, a filmmaker, a masterful filmmaker and 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 especially in his, his chosen genre who is, is working at the top of his game in the same way that you can talk about a, a christopher nolan uh yeah. it's it's awe inspiring it's huge it's half of frank herbert's uh, novel it can wow and it has something to say and we need that part too and if we don't get it it will be a crime against humanity. I'm as simple as that. Andy, you've got one other, which is your review of the latest of the Bloomhouse series. It's not worked for me. Uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but, but see if you can win me over with this one. So, The Manor is the last in this year's season of the Welcome to the Blumhouse productions for Amazon. And perhaps it's the strongest entry. The storyline feels somewhat familiar, but the presentation does it justice and the casting is strong indeed. Barbara Hershey plays Judith, who, after suffering a stroke at her 70th birthday party, is moved into a nursing home with a diagnosis of Parkinson's. Her grandson, Josh, who has always been close to his grandma, opposes the move and visits her frequently. Judith's roommate at the home babbles incoherently about being watched and something to do with the trees. And over her first few days, she also sees a lot of other suspicious behaviours going on. When she begins to see a shadowy, malformed being lurking in her room, however, she starts to wonder if her mind is truly slipping or whether something really sinister is going on. A familiar tale indeed, and something that will resonate around memories of maybe some episodes of Twilight Zone, other kind of anthology horrors and series in the past. But 
This one is handled very well by Axel Carolyn, who lends it an airy vibe throughout, whilst also presenting some deviating turns from what you would expect to happen. The shadowy creature design is a great design, one of the best that I've seen in recent years, chilling and just detailed enough to convince. Barbara Hershey is thoroughly engaging throughout, her decades of experience shining through to convince in the lead role, and Bruce Davidson is on hand to offer very able support. The tone of the film is right for a supernatural chiller, and the pacing is a very tight 91 minutes. It doesn't outstay its welcome. I'm glad I rounded off the season with this choice, as it's restored my faith in the Welcome to the Blumhouse idea and the idea behind these collaborations and collections. And I now find myself hoping that we'll get another wave of four for next October. Um, I think you've intrigued me, actually. Uh, I like Barbara Hershey. The fact that, that thinking of Barbara Hershey as being old is is uh, mind-boggling. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'll maybe, maybe I'll just give that one a, a go. In the meantime, if we take a look round to what you can look forward to over this next week. First up, over at cinemas, we've got Antlers. And we also have Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, which we will be getting to see and we will talk about next week on the show. On Now TV and Sky, you've got The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, the most recent entry in the series of films drawn from the nonsense that Ed and Lorraine Warren duped people into parting money with. I mean, loosely based on real events. And we also have Willy's Wonderland, in which a new janitor finds himself assigned to do an overnight clean of an abandoned family fun centre in which the animatronics have a life of their own. Yes, it's basically just an adaptation of Five Nights at Freddy's as a movie. And over on Netflix... Army of Thieves, the prequel to Army of the Dead that gives some background to how a small-time bank teller named Dieter got to be one of Interpol's most wanted criminals. Folks, that's about it for this week. But as ever, before we go, we talk about our neat things. Things that we've watched, seen, done, heard. Anything that's actually impressed us over the last week. Andy, what's your neat thing? I'm going back to an old favourite for my neat thing this week. And that is Humble Bundle, um, humblebundle.com. Oh, what you got this time? Because this week they've added on a Warhammer Fantasy role-playing game bundle, which is the tabletop dice and paper and fantasy setting story, interactive storytelling, if you want to add another term for it. And it's a collection of 50 books in the Warhammer Fantasy role-playing series for just over £20. Uh, Crucible 7 are the current publishers of the popular game series, which is now on its fourth edition. The base game of the fourth edition, the base book, is usually £28 itself in PDF form from the publisher themselves. But here you can get not only that, but a bundle that includes some of the current expansions, including the first part of the remaster of the Enemy Within campaign, one of the best campaigns that it's ever run, as well as all of the version two source books that came out. And that's some serious gaming stash with a cost value that would normally price over £400. The bundle is raising money for WaterAid, a charity that works worldwide to bring clean water and sanitation to poor communities. And you could donate whatever value you want to get the books. Just 72 pence will get you four starter books for the game. Just under £8 gets you all the offered fourth edition versions of the games. But like I said, £20 gets you all 50 or you can donate £100, £200, whatever you want. It goes to a good cause. It raises money for charity whilst rewarding you with hundreds of pounds worth of material for dirt cheap. If you're a fan of tabletop role-playing and you've never delved into Warhammer, then just give this bundle a shot. Trust me, it's one of my favourite tabletop role-playing games and it's well worth gathering some buddies around a table and playing. Uh, mine is something I think Andy's actually mentioned on an earlier show just because I, and I absolutely adore it, I'm now making it my neat thing. And that's Only Murders 
in the building <laughs> on Disney Plus. So as Andy said, I, have you talked? Have you, was this a neat thing, Andy? I think we've both done it as a neat thing at some point. <laughs> have we? So I, I did it first, and the following week you'd cut, you'd started watching it, so you threw it in. I but really must listen to this show. It sounds great. It, it's just wrapped. <laughs> so it, I think it's worth talking about again because season one has ended and teased what season two is going to be. So what you've got, and as, as Andy has mentioned it, Steve Martin, Martin Short, Selena Gomez, and they are uh, a trio who live in a west side uh, New York apartment block, a really swanky building, uh, of course, where there is a murder. They're all fans of a crime podcast, and the trio decide to investigate what has happened and who is the murderer in this particular murder in the building. And it is a joy. If you like your murder mysteries and you like them non-bloody, but but with a sort of gentle, knowing wink at the character, and who doesn't love a murder mystery, then this is the show for you. Steve Martin and Martin Short can just play off each other all the time and have just fabulous chemistry. And it has a quirky fun to it. Um, it's It does have comedy moments, but it's never a laugh out loud show. It's more of a smirk and a smile. And it keeps you guessing on what the murder mystery is. It works on all cylinders. Adding to that, Selena Gomez, it's just the perfect show. It's so damn likable. Uh, can't wait to see where they're going with season two. I am nearly finished the run on Disney Plus, and it is uh, just a, a, a beautifully put together series. Stylish, funny, dramatic, and of course, keeping you guessing right to the very end. And that's it for this week, folks. We'll be back again with another show. Anything planned for the um, next week, Andy? Uh, well, looking forward to um, seeing last night in Soho sometime. Yeah, hopefully we'll next be week. talking about that on next week's show, uh, the new one from Edgar Wright. Um, Andy, as ever, a pleasure to do the show with you. We will see you all again next week. Before we go, Andy, and this is aimed at you, a great man doesn't seek to leave. He's called to it. 